0: There's only one being that fits the criteria of what the medievals called independencia, and that's God. God alone is independent, and everything else is dependent, because that is the nature of being a creature. It's the creative creature distinction. And so when we buy into the myth of independence too much, it actually distorts our humanity, and it hurts us. Um, And so we view... One another in deeply problematic
1: ways. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary.
2: Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. Personally, I think one of the most powerful images, one of the most powerful points in the ministry of Jesus is when he does the unthinkable. He stoops down with his disciples, And in John's gospel, the way he describes it, he says, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Uh, This is such a profound image. And I think it's shocking. It was shocking to the disciples. If this is the Lord himself, how could he do this? How could he wash their feet? But it's still very shocking to us today, in part because to be a follower of Christ means we too are called to this type of servanthood or dare I say, especially in the world in which we live, this type of humility. Jesus washing his disciples' feet is not just an image of uh, the the type of salvation he has come to accomplish, but the means by which he is going to accomplish that salvation. And what I love about uh, that point in the Gospels is that Jesus doesn't leave it there he actually says to his disciples, if 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 I am doing this, if I am washing your feet, well of course then how much more are we then to serve one another. Of course Paul in Philippians chapter 2 makes much of this as he's trying to instruct the Philippians on what life in the covenant community and the church is supposed to look like. And of course he points us to Jesus Christ himself who he says humbled himself was obedient even to the point of death. And in language that sounds so familiar uh, to the book of Isaiah, he says, Christ took the form of a servant. This raises all kinds of questions. And if you've been a listener to the Creative Podcast, uh, you are familiar with a phrase that we like to use from time to time faith seeking understanding. That famous phrase that comes from Anselm, but of course is echoed by so many others. And I imagine that uh, you know that humility is supposed to connect to our theology much along the lines that we just said but maybe you haven't thought through well what exactly is humility what does that have to do with being human what does it have to do with being created in god's image what does it have to do with the limitations that are just intrinsic to just having a body and and living in this world and i think we could even probe further and say well if we define humility in a biblical way, uh, should we just limit humility to the context of, say, the fallen world and sin? Or is humility actually does it actually take it take us beyond the fall to act to, to discuss, well, could humility be something that is really important and essential to what it actually just means to be human apart from sin itself? Well, these are big questions, and also very practical questions at the same time. Uh, and it, it does bring us into the conversation uh, with not just ourselves, but with the great tradition before us, uh, whether it's, say, Anselm or a Thomas Aquinas or a John Calvin. Believe it or not, uh, many of these great minds of the Christian faith thought long and hard about what it means to be human and what it means to be humble because they thought humility was absolutely essential, both to being human and to understanding what it means to be a Christian. You know, it's difficult to think of really any theologian or any book, for that matter, that has actually been devoted to this discussion and this topic in in such depth. And one of the reasons that I find that tragic is because, well, humility is actually something that is wrapped up in the richness of the virtues that are supposed to define the Christian faith, both theologically and in terms of our Christian life. And that's one of the reasons why I am just so excited to have Kelly Kapik on the Credo podcast once again, because he has thought about this more than I think any contemporary theologian I know. He has thought about this in great depth, but also with great accessibility and compassion as he is thinking through, especially in a day like our own, what are the limits to God's design? How has he created us? And how does humility in particular frame frame who we are and how we are meant to relate to God and to one another? Kelly, thank you for joining me on the Credo podcast.
0: It's great to be with you. Thanks.
2: Kelly, I think I want to start uh, with maybe uh, a starting point that is um, going to to not jump right into this topic of humility, but actually uh, it's a bit uncomfortable, but actually force us to take a look at ourselves and maybe some of our own instincts. Uh, you've written a book called "You're Only Human: How Your Limits Reflect God's Design and Why That's Good News." And I must say uh, to our to our listeners, uh, this you you need to pick up this book. Uh, To understand who you are and uh, maybe some of the challenges you're up to date, up against, especially in the 21st century. But with that said, Kelly, you know, one of the things I love about um, this book is you actually devote a whole section on humility. But before you jump into humility and actually rethinking how we should define humility, you first uh, force us to take a look at ourselves and the lack of well, maybe we could call it a lack of community or what you call mutual relations uh, that seems to just escape us because we are so focused on being very driven uh, individuals, the, the self-made man. Can you, uh, I mean, uh, let me just give you permission for a minute here to make the, our, our listeners uncomfortable for a minute and, and maybe confront them a little bit about what, why, why is it that we're so prone to this?
0: Yeah, the obviously these are these are challenging questions to to try and explore. But yeah, the the book you're only human part of what I'm exploring is some of the inhumanity of our time and we can feel it in our bodies, in our relationships where we're just constantly exhausted and strung out. Um and that has everything to do with how we view ourselves and how we relate to others. Um and so part of part of what happens is especially those of us who have grown up in the west and in america in particular um the idea of independence is built into our dna uh i teach at college and one of the good goals for many parents is we want our children to become independent well rightly understood that's you know that's a good thing you want them to be able to feed themselves to get good jobs to to have relationships all of that but theologically and and given your audience i can talk theologically there's only one being that fits the criteria of what the medievals called independencia, and that's God. God alone is independent. And everything else is dependent because that is the nature of being a creature. It's the creative creature distinction. And so when we buy into the myth of independence too much, it actually distorts our humanity and it hurts us. Um and so we view one another in deeply problematic ways. So that rather than seeing others as gifted, as mutually, like we're mutually dependent, um, we see one another as either a threat uh, or someone we need to dominate or manipulate or ignore. And and the Christian vision goes against that because of how God made us. So I, I guess the basic point I would ask And this is very uncomfortable for us is when I say the word dependence, how does that emotionally hit you? And if you're like me and most of us, it doesn't feel good. It Mm -hmm. feels wrong, morally wrong even. And that should be now I'm fully aware of problems of, um, kind of dysfunctional dependence, codependence. But that really is not what we're, we're talking about. We are made to be dependent, and we actually are dependent. It's just we live like we're not, and mm. so that's that's kind of some of the background.
1: Mm.
2: Yeah, I, I like how you put that uh, because you know when I'm teaching theology and we get to say the attributes of God, um, I introduce my students to asciety, and sometimes they've never even considered. Uh, what what, sure. is, what does it mean for for God to be life in himself and self-existent and self-sufficient but uh it, this has great significance then for that creator creature distinction that you mentioned well if if that is who God is then then isn't it the case that we are very much dependent <laughs> creatures and uh yeah, I think you're right i mean even when I'm listening to you. You know, if you were to to say to me, you know, to ask me that question of, you know, how, how does this hit you emotionally to feel dependent? It, it, I just naturally, I, I I start to fight against it. You know, I, yeah, we I, recoil. I, yeah, we, that's right. Um, now, now, and and
0: yeah, can, can I just on the, It's it's fascinating because sometimes people think like I'm trying to do something to them, <laughs> and. <laughs> All I'm actually trying to do is help us see what is true and real in this world. Mm. Right. The difference, if you if you watch, say, a football player who's interviewed afterwards, who scored a touchdown or whatever, it's very interesting. We tend to know the football player is like, I did it all myself. I'm amazing. I'm the best. We kind of recoil. And yeah. then the other guy who's like, man, my blockers were amazing. Yeah. The quarterback threw it to me in this way. <laughs> da, 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 da. We go, yes, that's true. Yeah. Well, the reality is, we go to the grocery store, our, you know, our toilets work, all of that speaks of interdependence that we tend to not recognize, mm. right? And in, in, in I have in an earlier chapter, a whole section on the theological importance of our belly buttons, right? <laughs> so the, the fundamental argument of the book is we were made, and this starts to relate to humility, even before the fall, the way we were made as human creatures was always to be dependent upon God. To be dependent upon others and to be dependent upon the earth—that's yeah. the nature of what it means to be a human creature, mm. and that's not sinful. That's all good.
2: So let's t- let's that what you just said, Kelly. That is pretty key, isn't it? Because oftentimes yep. when we when we think of humility, we think in terms of the fall, in terms of sin, and we we might even assume well, if there wasn't a fall, then we wouldn't need humility. Um, and, and, and you even mentioned how if you go that far, then, well, it's no wonder that when you think of humility only in the context of, say, you know sinfulness in your life, you, you can confuse humility with a type of self, self-loathing. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and it's really at that point I, that I stopped and thought, Oh, yes, this is this is so common. So d- d- maybe you could, you know, for our listeners who are thinking, well, what do you mean that, you know, if there's not a fall, there's still a need of humility? You started hitting it a, a, a minute ago. Can you flesh this out just a little bit more?
0: Yeah, so, and these are great questions to explore, and they're super pastorally important, super practical. Um, a, a way of putting it is, um, and let me be clear with listeners. If they know my work, I've edited a book called overcoming sin and temptation. I, I, under, I don't deny the reality of sin. <laughs> Trust me. I'm a reformed theologian. We're sinners and you think you're a sinner. And I probably think you and I are even worse than we know. <laughs> but at the same time, I actually also think you and I have more dignity than probably you and I tend to believe either, too. So those things don't cancel one another out anyways. So if you, if you think about it this way, if you only think, of, if you think of humility as based in sin, then the kind of question you ask is, or the qu- kind of statements you you make is, um, can you forgive me? Or I am sorry, right? Which are appropriate comments and questions to make. However, if, if humility is based on, and my whole argument is humility is based on the doctrine of creation, not the doctrine of sin. If it's based on creation, then humility isn't just saying, I'm sorry. It's also saying, can you help me? Mm. Can you show me the way? Can you teach me? I don't know. And to say, I don't know. Can you help me? Is not a sign of moral failure. It's a sign of being a creature. Mm. (laughs) And what happens is the argument is if when we have, and we have at different times pretty significantly in the history of the church, when we've based the, the idea of humility on the foundation of sin, that foundation, I'm, I'm a theologian. I'm not good at construction, but I do know this from people who are, if the foundation is, is not laid well, it will eventually disrupt the whole house and you won't be able to close the windows and the doors won't open and close smoothly. And that's what happens. And so you do get self-loathing and self-hatred. And, and as a reformed theologian, I see it all the time where people think if, if, we'll put it this way. If sin, if, if humility is built on sin, then the way to cultivate humility is to focus on your sin. And mm-hmm. I'm saying, let's not deny our sin, but there is a different path. Yeah. You can actually cultivate humility, not by focusing on your sin, which by the way, tends to make you even more self-absorbed. Yeah. But if it's built on creation then a healthy way you can foster humility is by learning to delight in others, recognizing gifts they have that you don't have, delighting in your dependence upon others and on God, cultivating things like gratitude. There are healthy ways to cultivate humility without berating yourself and cultivating self-loathing.
2: Uh, very key. Very key. And, and Kelly, would you even go further and say, if we understand humility in this sense, then humility is a type of gratitude in light of who the creator is.
0: Absolutely. Which is which is partly why, even if there's no sin or fall, um, Adam and Eve were meant to be grateful, mm. right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, because all they have was from him.
2: Yeah.
0: All is a gift from the Father through the Son and by the Spirit. And it goes back to him, right? All things are from him and through him and to him. And we get to participate and enjoy um, as part of His creation, particularly the humans. Humans as the pinnacle of His creation, meant to lead the praise, meant to lead the gratitude. Um, but yes, it at its best, humility is joyful. It's not sad.
2: Mm. Now let's bring uh, um, one of the great theologians of the Christian faith, Thomas Aquinas, the 13th century. Uh, scholastic theologian let's bring him into mm. this conversation because many don't realize this but uh you know we think of theology today and and we think of that as something that's completely ir- um removed from say discussions about virtue or ethics but when thomas aquinas wrote his summa uh, isn't it fascinating that he spent so much of it uh discussing virtues and mm. this i think could be relevant here because uh you bring him into the this whole conversation to say, uh you know to ask the question what why is uh why is Thomas distinguishing between pride and uh, what we could call magnanimity so can you distinguish between those and explain why how does that actually help us understand humility better
0: yeah it's great so and you you know this but for listeners. So there's, there's a debate, right? About, well, people know Thomas Aquinas heavily drawing from Aristotle, right? But one of the things that not as isn't always recognized, and Alistair McIntyre is an example who points this out. He just says, you know, Aristotle would have, would have hated the apostle Paul and Jesus on the question of humility, Uh right? He would have found it deeply problematic. And he explicitly says that, which is fascinating because, McIntyre's no lightweight when it comes to the history of ethics. Mm. Um so how do you get Aristotle, who seems to say very he, he thinks of he thinks of humility as one of the extremes to be avoided, right? Um how do you move from that to Thomas Aquinas, who is a Christian theologian, who thinks humility is should be the pattern and way of life for the Christian? How do you make it a positive? Well, part of it is, and and scholars of both Aristotle and Aquinas can, can debate some of these things and nuance them, whether that's totally fair to to Aristotle or not. But what Thomas is doing is saying, well, arrogance and pride is a problem, but that the opposite is not that we have nothing to contribute, which is why he talks about magnanimity, right? Um, The greatness of soul. And, um, actually GK Chesterton in his book on Thomas Aquinas has this great line where he, he's trying to distinguish between Aristotle's view of the great man or the one who can make great contributions and Thomas Aquinas. And basically he said, um, he says for Aristotle, the great man is great and knows that he is great for Thomas Aquinas. The great man is great and knows that he is small. Ah. Uh. And that's so important because sometimes Christians, when they start to study humility, think we what we need to do in order to be humble is be very quiet, unassuming and never make contributions, never have big thoughts, never work really hard. Don't draw it. No, no, no. That's not the point. But you can you can be as he, you know, to use the medieval language, this magnanimous, this this one who, who brings these great thoughts and contributions, but it's not because you're so amazing. You're recognizing you're just one creature among many and God has given you something to contribute. And so you contribute recognizing that what you yourself are contributing is still a gift from God to you that you get then to give to others. Mm. It's not you generating it. It's God who is generating it and allowing you to participate in it. It's very, I mean, in that way, there are some similarities to kind of the Calvinist tradition of common grace insights and those kind of things. But, but the Christian can participate in these things and be humble because they're constantly recognizing not just does it come from God, but by and large, you can't get these insights on your own. Anyhow, you're drawing from people even when you don't know you are.
2: And Kelly, I mean, w- when you say that, I, I I think that we we must also, uh, and, and of course, this is where you go with it, right? I mean, you you also then add, and, and here you're building off of uh, of, of Thomas himself. Y- you also, you know, give a pretty bold. Uh, admonition if i can put it that way to those to to those who are faint hearted right mm-hmm. it, and 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 this is fascinating because i think that we've all seen this and and maybe experienced it or maybe this has been us right where mm. we we put on a presentation of humility like the, along the lines you're talking about right that oh we mm. we shouldn't uh say anything about ourselves we 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 should definitely not you know uh say anything about any talents God's given to us and which we should just, uh, and it sounds humble, but, but actually you say, well, could that be, uh, not, not just a type of pride, but could that be a type of faint heartedness or what Thomas calls a smallness of spirit? I suppose we could call this today just, you know, frankly, a lack of courage. Um, mm. or maybe, you know, especially in our American vocabulary, uh, you even use the phrase a uh, defective ambition. Now that's mm. really striking. Um, what do you mean by that exactly?
0: Yeah. So there, there are these <clears throat> extremes, right? So the problem with arrogance or pride is to think that you did it on your own and you are better than other people and that kind of thing. Well, interestingly enough, you know. Pusilimity, this idea that that Thomas is playing about with this faintness of heart is the opposite extreme where you think too lowly of yourself. Mm. And the reality is God has given everybody gifts to use. And so we need to see and recognize the gifts we've had we have and use them. So one of the ways I would put this is. You know how we need one another? We're more familiar with this. We need one another to point out our blind sides, right? Our our blind spots and 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 our sins or neglects or whatever. And and friends and others will say, Hey, I I don't think you know you you're doing this or you're hurting people or whatever. And they will say something and we go, Oh, wow, okay, I didn't I didn't see that. Thank you. We need them. But interestingly, I think part the opposite is true as well. Our gifts are often also things we don't recognize often because they come more naturally to us. Now, rightly understood, even gifts require attention and our agency and and development. But because we're more natural at them often, we assume everybody's like that. We don't even think it's a gift, and then we downplay it. But part of what's going on is we need to believe others when they say, you are bringing something to the table. You are bringing this right? Whether it's a sense of hospitality or excellent with children, or you are a creative or you, whatever it is, they see things. And it's part of what we have to have the courage to believe is that the community can help us understand what gifts we may have. And then we, they can help us have the courage to exercise those gifts.
2: And, you know, this is so, I think, crucial because as you just mentioned, if we're, if we're going about that in that type of community, well, then that, that community, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, uh, is, is also teaching us that, well, yes, we're, we're recognizing these gifts in you and you shouldn't hide them. Like you said, you know, these are gifts that are on the table, uh, but nonetheless, they're gifts from God. <laughs> and so, yeah. So, yeah, so so these are not—it's not as if—I um, think sometimes we think that, well, to be humble, we, we know we have these gifts, but we, we really shouldn't say anything about them. And at the, at, the, at the most, you know, maybe others will say something, but hopefully not, you know, too, too loudly. But actually, I think what you're pointing out here is is actually very biblical to, in, in saying, well, if, if the community is thinking about these things in the, in the right—in a way that's healthy and good— They're just acknowledging, yeah, you are a small person, but look at these great gifts God's given you to do these great things.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's Paul and Corinthians, right? We need the whole (laughs) and the gifts are always given for the good of the whole for the good. They are not selfish. And James is make, makes the opposite point. Like you don't have what you want because you are asking God for your own selfish gain, your self-absorption. God is the giver of God, all good gifts all good gifts you know all, all these heavenly gifts come from God himself but he gives gifts for the good of the, of his creation for the good of his people for the good of his world not for our own self-absorption right uh, there's a I, let me just quote a little bit of this prayer I include from Thomas mm. in that chapter because I, I love it's an actual prayer from him and it captures both of these sides where where Thomas says grant that whatever good things I have I may share generously with those, uh, who have not. So whatever I've been given, let me, God be willing to, to give to those who don't have it. And he's not just talking about material things. It could be the gift of encouragement. It could be the gift of presence. It could be, uh, you know, an industry, whatever it is. But then the, then he says, he continues his prayer and that whatever good things I do not have, I may request humbly from those who do.
2: Mm.
0: See, Thomas gets wow. the dependence. Yeah. We are made both to give and to receive, uh, some of my work with Brian Fickert. Some, some people know, uh, he's the one who wrote, he's an economist, Yale PhD, and he wrote when helping hurts. And he and I did a book later called becoming whole, but part of, part of Brian's right emphasis is, um, there's no, you hurt people, and And, kind of in American churches, we're notorious for this, because we love to be the givers. we want to give you what we think you need, and then we're gonna feel great about ourselves, and we're gonna leave and when that's the case, you often unintentionally hurt people in the process rather than help them. The reality is the way God made us, all of these relationships need to be mutually enriching, so even in something like poverty alleviation. When one enters into a community or an individual who is in great material need, you still need to ask, what assets do they bring? Because God has given them something. And by you helping them recognize it, it affirms their dignity and value and agency. And you're not there as the hero. You are there to give gifts and to receive them, just at a very practical level. That's an example of, a right understanding of humility can help us with poverty alleviation right these are not abstractions
2: now kelly someone might object at this point and say that well okay you know you're you're elevating humility here pretty high mm-hmm. uh, isn't that a problem because paul seems to say it's love it's charity to use an, an older an older uh word but i'm guessing you don't see those two in conflict.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fascinating because the way Thomas Aquinas does it is charity or for him, love is still the top of the list, not humility. Um, because rightly understood love is what shapes and forms humility or reflects right humility. Right. Um, And rightly understood, humility is rightly relating to God, neighbor, and the earth. And that would be participating in love. Um, So, yeah, love is still this guiding God is love. (laughs) We participate in his love. But humility is the word you would use for a human creature who is participating rightly in this loving relation to God, neighbor, and earth.
2: That's such a helpful clarification. Now we've been talking about one extreme um, and how Thomas Aquinas helps us to, you know, rightly call out that type of, you know, false humility that we sometimes portray in ourselves and helps us understand humility correctly. Um we could we could also then bring in John Calvin as you do, uh bring Calvin into this discussion as well, because maybe another um extreme that we are prone to is and, and you even mentioned it earlier i think this is one that goodness with uh the way that we're built today with social media and 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 so much more a self a, a type of self absorption and self love mm. can really run rampant and uh this is something that I mean to to say to someone, right? To say to someone, when was the last time you just f- forgot yourself? <laughs> yeah. uh, that would they would probably look at you as if you were from another planet because mm. everything that we do uh, is is so geared to think about ourselves. So let's let's ask um, John Calvin to join us at this table and. Mm how how and maybe you can can shed some light on this how how exactly does calvin you know he uses language like doing business with God, and how does he address this type of um love for self uh which he he describes as a type of perversion
0: yeah, so um when he talks about doing business with god some of some of your listeners will know about kind of Luther and the whole um, kind of living cord cordial, uh, not Cordeo oh, home. My, my brain just kind of went long week, <laughs> um, living before the face of God. Right. And this is Calvin's version of that. And what Calvin is trying to do is it, it, when he's exploring humility, he, I, I, I kind of boil it down to two questions. He's kind of getting us to ask or, or, or ways I would help us understand what Calvin's getting at. And, and the first question is, um, do you recognize all of your, all of your abilities and gifts as gifts from God? And I think we're pretty comfortable when we say, yes, yes, yes. We know everything we have is from God. I think we say that more easily than in our lives, because we often know when, you know, I, we have, you know, students will perform, you know, a something, you know, a theater or whatever. And afterwards you, you, you say to a student, wow, you were amazing. I can't believe, you know, how well you played that role or how that was stunning, how great you were at dancing. And the natural response is almost always, oh, it wasn't that good. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I did this or that. And, and we basically, as Christians trained each other to do that. Mm -hmm. We think that's the humble response. Um, and what it often and you know there can be different reasons to respond that way, but but often what it betrays deep down for us is we actually still think it is us that's generating this. Yeah. So if we celebrate it, that then is a problem. It's arrogance or pride. Rather than whether or not you say the words out loud, rather than responding, Praise God, that's fantastic. Mm. I love that. It doesn't mean you did it perfectly. You could have danced better. You could have, you know, maybe you didn't slip up in one of the lines, right? Um, like I like I did a minute ago right it's okay uh you can praise god for the gifts you've been given and you've been able to use them even imperfectly so the first question is do you recognize whatever abilities and gifts you have are gifts from god i think we're more comfortable with that although it's it's a challenge but the second question that calvin kind of turns um the the, the pressure a little bit more is he basically turns and says How do you recognize the gifts of other people? Uh. Do you see them as gifts from God? Right. When, if you're like me and I really wanted to learn how to play guitar in high school and I, you know, I practiced so hard and my fingers got raw and went through that developed calluses. But the truth is I was terrible (laughs) and every song (laughs) sounded the exact same way as the last Uh. one. Right. And then I'd see a friend and he'd pick up the guitar without hardly any, and he was amazing. And then he's picking up a truck and I hated him. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, and so what's interesting is no, no, no. Can we recognize these are gifts from God and that I don't need to manipulate and you can see this in terms of how Christians treat sanctification. The the sign is, well, if someone's really good at guitar, then do I think my job is to quote unquote, keep them humble And Calvin says, listen, when you recognize gifts, it would be a great betrayal not to honor. And then he's very careful what he says, not to honor God as the giver of gifts. But he also says, and the one who uses them. And we don't like the second part because we're worried, oh, you're drawing too much attention to that person. You're going to make them proud hey, just so you know, that's called manipulation. Uh, (laughs) So we need to celebrate and honor gifts God has given, bring encouragement. And, and so those are these test cases. How do you view your own gifts and talents? How do you view others? They, those kind of questions start to to take us down very interesting roads.
2: Yeah. That is so helpful, Kelly, because, uh, goodness, I, I feel like this is something you see quite a bit um hmm. especially in our christian circles we we don't want to we we recognize okay there's a lot of selfishness out there and so but but we don't turn in the direction you're talking about instead we turn in this direction which is yeah it is a type of manipulation in which uh it sounds so humble to say well we don't we don't want to you know acknowledge or even praise the gifts of others but in reality, it's actually quite <laughs> ironically, it's, it's actually quite selfish because we are not we are not doing exactly what you just said. We're actually not denying ourselves and and recognizing uh, just the amazing fact that God uh, has has done something so wonderful in others. I, I what I love about what you said too is that if if we can get past that, there is um. A freeness, a, a liberty. Mm, I think, absolutely. Uh, because let me see if I can just describe it this way, and and, and then uh, feel free to to jump in here. But you know, I mentioned that self forgetfulness, and I think that when we're so self absorbed, or we're we're so worried about making sure no one else is praised, uh, may, and that that may come mm-hmm. out of a, a jealousy in our own heart, it creates. A lot of anxiety. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you have a great. I, I, I love this quote. I, I think it's from Theodore Roosevelt uh, when when he says, "Comparison is the thief of joy." Mm-hmm. And I couldn't help but think, "Yeah, that's social media for you <laughs> today." Yeah. Because yeah. you don't you don't necessarily realize you don't necessarily log in. Well, hopefully, mm. you don't log in and and start scrolling and think yeah, I'm going to start comparing myself (laughs) to others. But naturally that's, that's what we all do. And it's, it, you, you, by the time you log off, you realize I've, I've, I have anxiety. I, where's the joy. There's no joy Mm. anymore. And, um, it, it, it does bring about these, uh, this, this fixation on how am I doing in comparison to others, rather than that, very healthy forgetfulness and saying, oh, look at what so-and-so did. I want to praise them.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Calvin actually, you, you know, we always think Calvin and depravity and total depravity. Calvin actually uses the language. It is a great depravity on our part. And this is an actual quote to deprive those who bear the gifts of the honor, which the Lord bestowed on them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, the, the positive is it is the path of liberty and life it is joy um it is and, and it, honestly this this takes us to there's an earlier chapter in the book you know does god love me or does god love you and that's an it's a longer exploration but when i say does god love you we all as christians we say absolutely he loves me but if i change the question and i say does god like you That's way more uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like when I ask a student, "Do your parents love you?" They almost always say, no matter how dysfunctional, problematic, they say, "Yes, my parents love me because they're my parents. They have to love me." It's kind of the requirement. (laughs) It's exactly how we think of God. And then if you ask a student, "Your, do you think your parents like you?" Yeah, it's amazing how often that just brings deep emotional response. Yeah. Well, I think it's related to how do we think God views us, and. I can't unpack the whole chapter here, but I think it's worth asking, does God like us? I didn't just say that he like our sin, but does the creator like us in our particularity? Does he, does he like Matthew Barrett? Does he like Kelly Kapick and my particular gifts and limits and yeah. how I'm made to fit into his world? And so this matters because it's not just about humility. It's about the doctrine of sanctification and redemption, Hmm. God's goal is not to kill Kelly Capic and destroy Kelly Capic. Even though it talks about dying, the goal is to kill the sin that is distorting the good creature he wanted. Right. Um, He, he doesn't, he, he, the sin that perverts and so easily entangles us and disorders our loves and disorders our lives. He has got to deal with that because he likes what he made yeah, and he doesn't like the way it's gotten distorted. Right. So these things start to, they really matter. And again, just like humility, when we disconnect creation from redemption, creation from sanctification, it hurts us. So, so trying to think about what, what does the doctrine of creation mean for our lives is, is a driving force in the book because you know, it, One of the other guiding ideas is I really think evangelicals have, we have a very weak doctrine of creation and we have because for the last 150 years, when I say creation, everyone just thinks, oh, no, we talk about creation all the time. But what we mean is we're talking about when did God create the world and how did he do it? Yeah. And that is just far too reductionistic as an account of creation theologically. We need a much more robust view. And when you have that kind of view and then you, yeah. So you just get a spiritualizing that's very unearthly, very non-creation affirming, and that has deep consequences for the Christian life.
2: Hmm. Now,
0: that was a lot. Sorry.
1: No,
2: (laughs) no. Uh, I, I really think this is, Deserves emphasis, and, and I'm really glad that you went there, Kelly. Because I think you're right. I think that when we talk about the doctrine of creation, uh, we we focus on some of those other discussions or debates, but we're, we really are incomplete if mm. our, our, we we haven't thought through. Okay, well, do we actually take it seriously when when Genesis says, "God saw what He had made," and it was good. Uh, good. It's good yeah. in his eyes. Uh, I mean, if that must good, mean
0: good, 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 He just keeps <laughs> saying it, and we're like, well, that's not what really matters. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. And or, then we
0: think our bodies are terrible. Sorry. That's go ahead. right.
2: That's right. Yeah. Or or and and I find myself doing this. Right. We we know Genesis three is coming, and so mm. we say, okay, yeah, it says good, but but, <laughs> and we're mm. really. It's not that that's not true. We know Genesis 3 is coming. We know there's going to be a fall, a perversion. But uh, at the same time, we have to recognize, uh, well, it, what does it mean then to be renewed? Because mm-hmm. it, it, that has to then uh, be something that is good <laughs> in a way that, that uh, surpasses, uh, that, that makes us our, our true selves as, as God intended. Mhm. So yeah, I I I would agree with you there. I think that when we think about the doctrine of creation, uh, there's some real practical implications here then for how we think about ourselves, no doubt.
0: Yeah, I mean there's a just to jump in there. There's a later chapter in terms of why doesn't God just instantly change me, right? And it's a it's a similar thing. So we all struggle with sin, habits in our lives, other things we wish we were different, right? And if God doesn't want you and I to sin, which he doesn't when he makes us Christians, why doesn't he just instantly change us? Uh, Right. And, and this is a real issue for us, which is why at night we feel guilt and shame about all kinds of things, not just what we haven't gotten done, but sins and shortcomings. And so the question is, does God actually care? Yeah. And, And, and we know, no, he doesn't love me based on what I do. But at the same time, given that we continue to struggle what does God actually think of us? Right. And this is another example where the doctrine of creation matters because the God who made the world took his time Mm. and valued process. And in this way, it honestly doesn't matter if you think the world was created in six or seven literal 24-hour days or six trillion years. That's irrelevant because God could have made everything quicker than a millisecond. And the fact that he doesn't, Well, what, however you view when and how God made the earth, according to Genesis, he likes process. He takes his time. Even seven days is way longer than he needed to. Yeah. So if that, and the spirit who hovers over the tohu Levohu over the, over the chaotic waters, if that spirit of creation is the spirit of sanctification, then God is comfortable with process in our lives. Mm. And he's not panicked by our sin. And he's actually taking us somewhere. And he really did begin a good work in us and will carry it to completion. But if he's comfortable, it doesn't mean excuse your sin, but to live in a different relationship to the struggle because God values process and he's not just interested in the finished product. And and until we understand in our Christian lives, we will just constantly feel terrible about ourselves. But if you realize, no, 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 he's with us. He's growing us. He's doing this work and he values the process. So even though you're not finished, he loves you and he loves what he's doing in and through you now, not just one day.
2: Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It does. And it reminds me, I mean, I, I personally love to spend uh, my devotional time in the Psalms Mm -hmm. and I've, I keep coming back to this question. You know, why, why is it that the psalmists so focus on creation, right? I mean, s- mm-hmm. sometimes it's in the context of of just being overwhelmed. I mean, they, David, for example, if anyone knew anxiety, <laughs> it uh. was David, as, as his own life is in danger. But what I find so fascinating is that rather than than kind of turning inward, they focus on the beauty of creation and the goodness of creation, mm-hmm. and and that leads them to a, a very different, uh, destination, uh, much along the lines of, of what you're talking about. They, they actually, it actually leads them to this, a type of, uh, a, a freeness to say, oh, this is, this, this is who God is. He has made this mm. creation this good. And that, that then leads me to everything from trusting in him to glorifying him To resting in Him, I think one of the most convicting things I read in the Psalms, and it make again. This is something that just makes me so uncomfortable because it's so hard to do. Mm. Is uh, again and again when the Psalms say, "Wait, (laughs) just Mm. wait upon the Lord and be still. Know that I am, I am your God." I mean that I think gets at the very heart of of what you are describing. It, It is a real antidote, I think, to uh, the anxiety that stems oftentimes from our misconception of of what it means to be human, Kelly, we're yeah. we're about out of time here, and this has gone by so fast. I've I've enjoyed this so much. I feel like we could keep going yeah. for another couple hours, but um, we we have to bring this to an end. I want to give you the last word though, because in in your treatment of humility, you also bring in the Book of James. And certainly, um, you don't need to, you know, unpack the whole book of James. It's so rich, but maybe you could close us out and just, uh, take us back to the book of James for a second and talk to us about how James addresses this, uh, in a, in a way that's, that's quite relevant to our lives.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's tough. You're right. It's a longer conversation, but <laughs> I'll, I'll, we'll just say this, right? So James, one of the things that James does is he quotes um, the statement that you have throughout scripture that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that is worth teasing out and thinking about. And part of what's fascinating is I think part of what James is doing um, is he's calling us to a pattern i mean the whole book of james when you look at it james really cares about injustice uh james is the one who says you know what's real religion it's the orphan and the widow right uh and keeping oneself clean from the world and um there there's a lot going on and and how do you treat the rich and these kind of things and they are distorted views of what it means to be a human creature connected to other human creatures and to the creator and his earth. Um, and humility is a right understanding of one's place within that world and arrogance is a misunderstanding and treating people poorly as if less than or something like that. And so there there's fascinating things that I can't unpack it here, but I think there are some parallels he's doing to what Isaiah is doing. And I think whether it's direct or indirect, he's even alluding to Isaiah and this whole idea of wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Isaiah says this in in Isaiah chapter one, which is fascinating to say, what, what do you mean? We wash ourselves. We can make ourselves we clean. And he, And he says, yeah, you, you know, Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct uh, oppression, bring justice to the fatherless. These are all themes in Isaiah one that you find in James. And so it's an example. And, you know, obviously, this is a whole nother podcast. But humility requires a concern about biblical justice, uh, about how we treat others um, and those kind of things. So it, there's a lot to be said on humility and, biblically and in James, but kind of if i if I could say one last thing maybe to circle it around for humility and just a practical word for listeners, it would be the saying that goes around a lot, and I actually like the saying where we people are often comforted with the saying, "You are not enough, and I'm just and As a theologian, and you get this, you probably have the same malady, right? We're not very poetic and we always raise critical questions or whatever. And the phrase you are not enough, I would actually, as a theologian, as an annoying theologian, I would say, well, actually what we mean when we say you are enough is you are not enough,
2: Hmm.
0: which is exactly why you are enough. You were never made to be more than a particular human creature with limits, and so you don't need to be everything, do everything, know everything. And recognizing who God made you to be, to praise the creator and rightly relate to his creation in your smallness, even if you make great contributions, that's that's beautiful. So, so you and I are not enough, which is exactly why we are enough.
2: Hmm. I think that is a, a very appropriate way to end uh, a very rich a conversation with Kelly Capick. He's professor of theological studies at Covenant College. He is the author of uh, numerous books, such as Embodied Hope, uh, Theological Meditation on Pain and Suffering. Uh, And one of his most uh, recent books is called Your Only Human, How Your Limits Reflect God's Design and Why That's Good News. Uh, I would just close by saying to our listeners, uh, I think that you will find uh, Kelly, not only a reliable uh, theologian, but also uh, a very practical one that has thought long and hard about Christian life and knows your struggles uh, knows, and is quite compassionate and uh, at the same time brings uh, some needed conviction uh, along with theological clarification. I can't encourage you enough to pick up uh, Kelly Kaplan's books and to uh, read him and and, uh, return to the Credo Podcast, uh, where you will find more conversations with Kelly Capuch himself.
1: Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine, with articles on key doctrines of the faith, and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.